Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the news media issues of the week, and we're very grateful to have you joining us. My name is Rex Smith. I'm editor-at-large at the Times Union in Albany, here with Dr. Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. Alan, how are you? Well, as well as can be expected in these dark and perilous times, we're now hearing that this pandemic, Rex, may go on for as much as three years, some very knowledgeable predictors are saying. Yes, and we will have some conversation to come in this next half hour about the impact of that on the news media. Rosemary Armeo is here, investigative journalist and professor at UAlbany. How are you, Rosemary? I'm bored, but well, and that's the operative word these days, as Alan suggests. Boy, I guess that's right. Yeah. And Barbara Lombardo, a longtime executive editor of the Saratogian, the Troy Record, and now teaching at UAlbany as well. Barbara, are you doing okay? I am. I'm putting the grades in today. So uh, what are you finding about your students? How would you assess this year's crop of coronavirus-affected student journalists? Well, as far as the crop of students, I think it's the same as every semester. There are some extremely talented and driven students, and there are some that still need to find themselves. That's generously put. And some have really been having a very difficult second half of the semester. Yes. Because of the virus and related issues. I expect so. And for those who are coming out of school looking for work in journalism, it's got to be a really terrifying prospect. You know, just a terrible time to be trying to find a job just because the uh, financial setup, as we talk about it every week, is problematic. Now, the latest is that NPR even is cutting pay and benefits with a huge deficit. And this is an outfit that doesn't even have a profit motive and that turns for volunteers. But NPR, as I understand it, is going to lose $40 million, perhaps uh, $53 million in 2021. So that's a big deal. Right. And in, in order to understand that, Rex, we all have to understand that NPR doesn't own its member stations. Its member stations theoretically own NPR. That's how it got started. They elect a board and that's the way it works. Nevertheless, the member stations, all of us are having the same problems NPR is. For example, nobody's coming to our Linda Norris public auditorium because it's closed. And that's a couple of hundred thousand bucks, by the way. By the time that's over, there is also the matter of underwriting. Now, are obviously, in the same way newspapers are suffering from not having advertising, I think that's true of the member stations as well as NPR. What we, the people who run the member stations, are concerned about is that when times get tough for NPR, they tend to reach out and try to grab what the member stations have. And right now, the member stations are in real trouble. So I think there may be some antipathy there. Hmm. 
Rosemary, are you finding that, speaking of your students as well, are they sticking with journalism or are they saying, you know, I'm just going to do something else at this point? It's like journalism is becoming their interest, but they don't know if it can be their full-time interest. Internships have all dried up, of course. The job hunt, as you mentioned, is dire. And even finishing schoolwork and working on papers is much harder. Imagine having an assignment to go out that requires travel, interviewing face-to-face, very difficult to do. It's hard even for professional journalists to switch from face-to-face interviewing to calls and writing. So if you're a student and the whole thing is new to you, it's much more daunting. And for professors, it's difficult. I have the prospect of teaching investigative reporting next semester. And I'm spending time during the day now looking for lessons online and doing documentary searches and things that don't involve people. Everything is changing for professionals. So for students just starting out, it is both daunting and difficult. And on top of that, they have the same elderly parents who are sick and concerns about businesses, unemployment. All of those things affect them as well, too. I do not envy my poor students. Yes. And as you say, it's tough enough on professional journalists. You know, the Times Union newsroom has been closed for weeks now. Everybody is working from home. My successor as editor, Casey Seiler, is reminding people we do not need you to go out unless the story demands it. So, for example, all these stories about Governor Cuomo's briefings and so on are done by reporters who are watching the live stream. And I think you'll see that that is going to change journalism permanently. I think journalists will typically spend even more time at their desks This has been a problem that we've been dealing with in recent years as government officials increasingly have even refused to talk to reporters. They just send text messages or email messages as statements rather than even getting on the phone. I think it's increasingly going to be difficult to assure accountability because reporters aren't going to be able to get out and do their job. Barbara? Yes, I agree that this is a terrible time to be looking for a job. In the reporting industry, I would add one additional concern is that the image of the media, the reputation of the media is getting beaten down day after day after day from the top. And that can discourage people from going into a field. Granted, some people are going to relish it and say, I'm going to go after them. They're not going to stop me. But other people, it's who needs this aggravation? Who needs this shaming? Who needs to deal with the name calling and the incitement to violence against the media? I think that's going to be a big issue. Hey, Alan, here's a thought for you as a political scientist. Isn't this going to actually make it even more difficult, less likely for us to find conservatives in the ranks of journalists. If the president's supporters believe that journalism is evil, aren't young Trump supporters, and there are some, aren't they going to just move away from journalism? Or is there any way that journalism can again become something that conservatives and Republicans appreciate? Well, we all know that there's a deep division, that Fox News is the action central for conservatism. We used to have a guy named Herb London at WAMC. Do you remember him? And he would oh, come, yeah. on, he'd come on each week. He was quite strong in his views of uber-conservatism. There's now something called the London Institute, and his successor comes on to WAMC and does that. But you're absolutely right. It's always been difficult for us to find conservatives, no matter what anybody thinks. There are not that many around who we can tap, not in New York State, not in Vermont, not in Massachusetts, where we exist. Now, there are some, but you want responsibility. In other words, you want somebody who really is grounded as opposed to somebody who flies off the handle. 
Right. So I think that these conservatives who are interested in communications uh, have tended to and now increasingly will go into public relations instead, which is a real problem for journalists and in the age where the face-to-face interview declines. Kelly McEnany, for example, is the new White House press secretary. She's a model for them. And it's so easy when you don't have face-to-face interactions to put on a performance. And I think we're increasingly going to see that. We've had problems with overlarding of the PR offices for a while, but now it's going to become very crazy, I predict. Yes. Last year, before the latest wave of layoffs further decimated the ranks of reporters, as I recall, the number of professional public relations people outnumbered professional journalists 13 to 1 in this country. So that's going to be going on. Plus, the Trump administration has really given encouragement to a whole new ecosystem of right-wing media. Breitbart, for example, would not have been considered a venue that anybody with a journalism degree would have considered working for. But now there's a Breitbart reporter sitting in White House press room briefings when there are such. So, you know, we will probably have what we would previously have considered a thriving right-wing wing press for a long time to come, right? Can I give one example from this past week? We saw David Muir interview the president. It was a horrible, horrible interview. It was just like as if he handed the microphone to Trump and said, here, tell any lies you want to. I'm not going to interrupt. And contrast that with Kelly McEnany, who was confronted for comments she made rather late in the cycle about how the virus was not that big a deal and Trump had taken great action to stop it, all which is not true. She defended herself point by point. It's all wrong. And today, the Washington Post, in the Thursday Washington Post, she has refuted step by step on each of the charges she made against various media. But when she was up there spouting it off, is Fox going to take back what it said? Is the Washington Post going to take back what it said? We all made mistakes in the beginning. It was a performance, and it was magnificent. And the only principle that suffered in all of this, in your terrible interview and McEnany's, you know, sterling PR performance, is the truth. So David Muir, ABC anchor, it's an interesting point you bring up. You know, he's got 10 million viewers, let's say, really. I mean, mm-hmm. the audience for ABC News, the nightly newscast that he does is huge. And so here we go with the president reaching outside the Fox universe for once because he usually does interviews almost exclusively with Fox. But he gets an interviewer that basically lets him run away with it. Barbara, was that your observation as well? Yes, I was glad that Rosemary brought this up. I felt sick watching that because it was a missed opportunity. And what he needed to do was to be totally prepared with fact-based responses and follow-up questions to what the president said. So it would be unrealistic to think that he was going to be able to go there and expose him and get him to say something terrible um, or terrible for the president. But still, what he should have been able to do was not accept the answers, which weren't even answers to the questions that he was asking. When Trump was saying that the Obama administration left them short in supplies or unprepared to deal with this, and I was optimistic when Muir started to say, well, you've been in office for three years. What have you done in the past three years to make up for if you saw that there was a shortage? And, And he went off on how busy he was with the Russia hoax and the impeachment stuff, and it was so aggravating. And 
what I was hoping Muir would do, what he should have done, was then come back with some fact-based responses to that response, not just let the answer dribble off into the ether sphere as a as a quote for Trump forever. He there were mm-hmm. there were numerous items like that in that interview where Muir missed an opportunity to come back with a fact-based response, talking about the deaths. He said there were five deaths, fifteen deaths. Now. He's interviewing him at a time when there's 71,000-plus deaths in the United States, and he did not have a good comeback for him, and that was gravely disappointing. It was a huge missed opportunity. Trump is not an easy interviewer, and it's very difficult, as Barbara said, to ever catch him in anything. I think the only time I ever saw it was Chris Matthews, who's interrupting bullying form of interviewing is not something many of us want to adopt. On the other hand, Jake Tapper manages to say, no, that's not true. Or somebody else will say, no, here's what you actually said, Mr. President. Let me read you your quote. Barbara's right. Preparation could have saved that interview. It was terrible. I'm going to use it in classes as an example of how not to do an interview. The opposite example of that, although the circumstances are totally different, to be fair, but Jonathan Swan had done interviews with Jared Kushner, totally different kind of a setup, but he had his pad of facts, and Kushner would give an answer, you know, was birtherism a bad thing is the question, and he gives some baloney answer, and Jonathan Swan could keep after him with the questions. Now, my, my mm-hmm. husband, when we're watching it, and he's an avid news consumer, and we're often yelling at the TV, he'll say, ask a follow-up question. You've you got to ask a follow-up question. <laughs> but in the, question, in the case of the Muir interview, he's saying, well, if you ask too many follow-up questions, or if you're too tough on him, then you lose your access. I think what a lot of people don't know is getting access is very important, but also there are some negotiations that go on sometimes. And that's what we don't know. If we watch an interview and we see a failing inquisitor, we have to say to ourselves, hey, I wonder what they had to do to get the president on and what promises were made either explicitly or implicitly. I think implicit is probably the more realistic uh, sense. I don't think that a network news operation would make any upfront commitments not to do something. But I think that probably, don't you think, an official knows where they're going to get a hard interview. They know that Jake Tapper is going to be tougher, and now we find out tougher than David Muir. You know, they know if they go to Fox that Chris Wallace is going to be tougher than Brett Baer. Obviously, we just saw the president's performance at the Lincoln Memorial. So I think that's what you mean. I mean, that that's more likely, Alan, isn't it, than an explicit statement of we won't go into this area of conversation, right? You, you know, Rex, I don't know the answer. I mean, these are strange times. I think the journalism that you were raised in would not permit it. But these are very strange times. We see Sinclair Broadcasting obviously struggling right now, and you know that they have been sort of identified as being to the right of center substantially in terms of what they've said to their people. We They're just a don't... propaganda outlet. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that, that, that's a different way. Sort of way to of... the right. They're total propaganda. Wait, I want to make that clear. I don't want that's any a... endorsement of Sinclair that, on this program. That, that is a different way of putting it, all right. <laughs> but, um, but, but, these are, but these are strange times, and people are struggling to make it. And people are doing despicable things, as you just point out, Rosemary. Listen, so, though, it isn't new, Alan. It is not new. Back in the FDR how many journalists hid the fact that he could not walk and that was never reported because if you did, you'd never get another interview with him. John Kennedy in the 60s, his good friends were the reporters around him and they kept quiet about his womanizing and it was all because they wanted to be close to 
to the president. They wanted access to him. These are issues that journalism have fought with for years. We should know better by now. You go after the story, the person, uh, and power. That's true, but I have a bar of soap I'd like you to use based on your comparisons between JFK, FDR, and this president, if you know what I mean. (laughs) He compares himself to Lincoln, Alan. He's sitting in front of the Lincoln Monument holding news conferences, so I could have been even worse. (laughs) So did we live through, Rosemary, uh, did we work in the golden age of American journalism? Because if you think of the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, before the great cutbacks began to decimate newsrooms and hobble news organizations, when we had the freedom and the encouragement to be as tough as we could be on news sources because we were more powerful than they were. Is that era gone for good? I totally believe it is. I've said that repeatedly. First of all, you and I had entire careers in journalism. We don't have to supplement by moving into other jobs in order to pay for it. We've worked for organizations hardy enough to support journalism. We went, lived through the time when LBJ was pushing through freedom of information laws, when the Vietnam War was showing people that, listen to the press, they're telling you the truth, not your government. Those were heady, heady times. And I thought they would last forever. I thought we were into a new age where everything would be different than it has been. And it's shocking to me that we are now further behind than we were in the 60s when I was starting out. I have to agree with you. I'm a Watergate baby. I was in college during Watergate and went into journalism and thought that we can change the world for the better. And not that there's glee in toppling a presidency, but that the truth will out. And I thought that was a fantastic field to go into and Mm -hmm. in many ways still do. But times have changed. If I were starting out now, to Barbara's point, it would not be journalism. It would be either law, because lawyers at high levels change the world, or it would be politicians. And the world of politics is so dirty that many promising young people in the United States and elsewhere don't want anything to do with it. And I want to point out that 50% of the people who graduate from law school never practice law, Rosemary. It's not all that attractive a profession. And then, you know, there are the various gradations of firms and things. It's a tough thing to do. And many people who go into law have to sell their souls. Right. But then they get appointed to the federal bench by the president. Um, Just to a different point here. Sorry. You you know, local journalism, though, still has its supporters. I mean, I think that if we could find a financial solution to the plight of local journalism, there would still be support for the kind of truth telling that people look for on the local level. People appreciate accountability reporting that holds city hall and state houses to account. We just need a financial model, for example. This sensibility that the great organizations that are eating up all the digital ad dollars, Google and Facebook, ought to be paying the local news organizations that they have hobbled, that they have taken all the money away from, that there ought to be some model by which they're not simply using all of this content generated by the locals, and there should be some payments. This is now being implemented in Australia And you wonder if that couldn't happen in America. I say dream on, Rex. I think that there will be some. There'll be some lip movement on the whole thing and maybe, you know, a few dollars here and there. One of the things that I'm interested in, if I can just move it a little bit, is, you know, when somebody dies, I learned this long ago on the radio. If somebody dies who is despicable, you're not supposed to say it, right? 
Now, every once in a while, a newspaper dies that is also despicable. And I think that people take the same attitude towards that. You don't say anything bad about a dead newspaper that's dying. Everybody who knows better says, oh, wasn't that awful the way that that happened? I'm not going to name a name here, but I think I've certainly seen it. On the other hand, there are some great newspapers like the Columbia paper in Columbia County, which I've mentioned a couple of times, which bit the dust, but is a wonderful, was a wonderful, wonderful, honest broker. And they went. I feel bad about them, but I've seen others. Yes, they were trying to run against the uh, current anyway. They created the paper only about a decade ago, right? right. Uh, yes, at a time did. when print was already dying and picked up the shards of a weekly that had closed down. So I'm really grateful that they did that for the for a while. And, and sorry, but even the very name of it is an anachronism, the Columbia paper. So there's probably more hope in digital. You know, the New York Times has just reached a record six million subscribers. They added more than a half million digital subscriptions just in the first quarter of this year. But the problem is they're still making a tiny amount of money and their ad revenue in the second quarter of 2020 will be 50% below what it was a year ago at the Times. And that's the most successful media operation in the country. So the problem is even if you can build up a huge circulation base digitally, as the Times has done, you can't necessarily monetize it because people don't pay enough to really sustain the size of newsrooms that local journalism requires to be effective. You know, Rex, in our area, Berkshire County, the Berkshire Eagle, which was doing extraordinarily well, they had a bunch of really major backers, the paper was flush every day, but they fall back and their paper is a shell of what it was. The Chartox send them over $350 for a subscription, but I can only say they are featuring on their front page a thing saying, if you want more, go digitally. And it sounds to me like that may be a bit of a transition from newsprint to, to digital. Well, I think the newspapers now are always or should be inviting and encouraging their readers to look for more content online so that you're getting the most timely news and you're getting updates to things and you can do graphics. There's a sense that if you move to online readership, the ultimate delivery costs are going to be cheaper. You want to transfer readers over there and give them the sense that the news is fresh. But not advertisers. Rex has talked so many times about how advertisers are willing to pay if the ad is on the paper as opposed to digital. And that could spell real trouble if that transition occurs. Right. It's just that the digital ads don't yield as much revenue as those print ads do, which is why those outfits that are taking all the print ads ought to be putting some money into it. Or we should be seeing if the United States could have a model like that of other countries, including the UK, where there has been some direct financial support for newsrooms. That is going on in New Jersey. The state actually has created a journalism fund in New Jersey for places that are so-called news deserts, places where there isn't local news coverage. It's not going to help organizations like mine, for example, a, a privately held company that runs a newsroom, but places where there is no news being produced. These are communities that really need help. 
Would there be anything wrong with funding similar to what the Corporation for Public Broadcasting does for public broadcasters? Well, lots. First of all, there are all kinds of protections with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are a couple of years in advance. But can you imagine Donald Trump, who has identified the news media as the enemy of the people, to say, okay, I'm willing to go along with a federal program which funds a congressional program which funds newspapers. That ain't going to happen. And what's more, sooner or later, somebody is going to print something in a newspaper paper or say something on a radio station which is going to tick off a politician and that will be the end of that wonderful experiment. It hasn't happened to you. I mean, WAMC still exists and has for many years. So why do you think it would happen to other media? Well, first of all, we just talked about the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and thank you for the opening, Rex. We're in the middle of a fun drive right now, and I can tell you that the money is pouring in from people who really treasure what they have there. The government gives us, I think, 5% of what we get, and I know that our station could do without it if we had to. It would be hard, but we could do without it. But the model that we've established is that the people pay for what they want, and they have been. With the election coming up, there is going to be political advertising, and I know that you probably have seen that CNN wants Trump's campaign to cease and desist the misleading ad that it has been trying to run and running. And I'm wondering what you're finding, Rex, at the Times Union, and what you anticipate even on the radio. Well, the radio station is going to be a little different in terms of campaign ads, and how do you turn away ads? You don't want to take the money for advertising that is untrue, misleading. How do you handle that? That's a great. If we ever got any campaign ads, it would be a marvelous thing. <laughs> Occasionally, in some local races, you get them. And if there's anything that looks to the advertising department like it may be questionable or misleading, they will ask the newsroom to research it. And we don't make a decision, of course, for them on whether they're going to accept an ad. But if there's content that seems to be untrue in the rare ads that come along, like we will get ads from judicial candidates and that kind of thing, but we're unlikely to get real campaign ads. You know, the question about keeping ads accurate is a very difficult one because we can't even keep the unpaid content accurate, let alone the advertising that we know is going to be distorted. I've heard this discussion now for many years, as you have too, Rex, and we don't come to solutions. We have not figured out. You said it's just the financial model. That's everything. And worse than that, I think that there's a lack of appetite for local news in this country. When we say people have a hunger for news, we mean the big Trump-like national stories that are the bellywick of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And the place, the big, great regional newspapers of my career are all gone or on the last lakes now. And that, to me, is the real danger. That's where you have corruption at the local level. I don't think there was ever a huge appetite for this. People didn't say, oh, what's the government doing now, you know, in the sewer department? Or they never did that. They kind of read that on their way to sports. And there's all new ways to look at sports and comics and be amused now that we didn't have in the old days, 100 years ago in newspapers. So I'm not sure that a business model that requires getting money to support the whole operation will ever exist. And I think education also has to change so that people see the value of knowing about what's happening around them. Those to me seem a lot bigger than whether you're going to get a PBS-like operation for newspapers. And on that, we're going to have to let it go. We've oh. run out of time for this week. How That's about a downer. That? No, I needed someone else to do this to end this. <laughs> we'll have to come back next week for good news. That's the Media Project for this week. Thank you for joining us, and thanks to our producer, David Costina, Rosemary Armeo, Barbara Lombardo, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. Thank you for joining us this week 
on the media project. To represent the common people, funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.